Uh, so each cat is represented by a 256-bit number that is its unique genome. And when two cats get together, they can breed a kitten. And that kitten has uh, its genetics derived from its parents. From the weird and the wonderful like that to more traditional applications. Destroy your opponents in epic battles. Collect and combine cards to create the strongest deck to fight your enemies. Blockchain technology is opening up entirely new industries and disrupting old ones. This is all we see online. So we've got my name, the name of the song, when it was released, the time, and the album, if it was connected to the album. That's singer Imogen Heap speaking at Slush Music in 2016. She's developed a decentralised system called Mycelia that allows musicians to distribute their music using the blockchain and stay in control of their digital rights. What I would like to put up there is all this data. Look at all of that. So much data. Untapped data. Nobody knows. Correct lyrics constantly being misquoted lyrics. I spend a long time writing those lyrics. I want people to know what they are. There are companies building distributed stock markets and others using blockchain to rethink our power grids. Instead of being one behemoth homogenous thing, it can be a whole bunch of little connected islands that can be independent or connected depending on circumstances and conditions. And that's just the start of what's possible. Welcome to Moonshot, the show exploring the world's biggest ideas and the people making them happen. I'm Christopher Lawson. And I'm Andrew Moon. And in the past few episodes of Moonshot, we've been looking at cryptocurrencies. But no matter what you think about digital coinage, it turns out the technology behind these currencies, blockchain, is really revolutionary. Yes, blockchain is already unlocking huge possibilities for decentralized applications. And in this episode, we're going to unpack a few of these ideas to see what can be done beyond currencies. So when blockchain technology was first invented, it was developed as a, as a money, right? So the first use case was to be payments or a store of value, and that was Bitcoin. You know, and lots of other lots of other tokens still have that property of, of being different types of money, including tokens like Dash and Monero and ones that, that provide anonymity in, 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 in transactions. Money and payments is the obvious first use case. So I'm Jason Potts, I'm director of the Blockchain and Innovation Hub at RMIT University, and I'm an economist that specializes in new technology and studying blockchain in particular. Now, before we get started, it's important to just rehash what blockchain actually is. Transactions in a cryptocurrency network are processed in blocks. Each block holds a batch of transactions, and then a distributed network of miners cryptographically sign and process each block, linking it to the previous block and creating a chain a blockchain. It's incredibly difficult to hack because every computer using the network has a record of the verified transactions. But the, the thing about what a blockchain is, is it's basically a way of, of verifying information, just in, any information where we, a group of people, a community, an econ economy, when we look at this information and go, yep, that's the true information about this thing. Um, now, if this thing is who owns this coin, we've got ourselves a cryptocurrency. But if the thing 
is pointing somewhere else, we've got other use cases. So if the thing is, if, if the entry in that ledger is pointing to who owns this bit of land, we've got ourselves a property titling system. If it's pointing to who owns this car, um, we've got we've got a, an asset titling system. If it's pointing to who owns this share, we've got ourselves a share registry. Um, if it's pointing to who is this person, um, we've got ourselves an identity system. Um, if it's pointing to who has this, does this person have a degree? Yes, no. And we've got ourselves a credentialing system. Um, does this person have the license to operate this vehicle? You know, and so on. So there's a whole lot of things where um, information about ownership, identity, registries, licensing, um, 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 relationships, and so on, are, are fundamentally ledgers. We don't normally think of them as ledgers because they're operated by government agencies or they're operated by banks or they're operated, um, they're just sort of part of the institutions of society. But um, what these things are also is just the underpinnings of an economy. Um, every time value moves in an economy, an entry in a ledger changes. So what if there were not only an internet of information, what if there were an internet of value? This ability to transfer ownership of items other than currency has led a lot of people to call blockchain the next big thing, saying it will be like a new internet, but focused on value. And there are a lot of people embracing this idea and experimenting with the technology to see what's actually possible. Blockchain, we think, uh, is, is a potentially very valuable technology. Clearly, you can't use it today uh, at a merchant or an e-commerce site because it's not fast enough and has very high energy needs and so on. But there's a very, variety of other applications where blockchain works very well. So we'll, we'll see how this all plays out over the next few years. That's the Chief Financial Officer of Visa, Vasant Prabhu, speaking with Bloomberg television earlier this year. Visa is a company that has been experimenting with blockchain technology, and one of the other companies experimenting is Australia's Commonwealth Bank. But given blockchain is the technology behind cryptocurrencies and is decentralized by nature, you might wonder why a credit card company or a bank, which are structure centralized, are at all interested in this technology. There's many banks looking at blockchain, and I think the reason is that um, we recognize that it's not just a potential threat to banks is also a huge opportunity. So we recognised this relatively early on and we've now spent several years um, looking at the technology to develop a really deep understanding of it and to develop some deep technical capabilities with blockchain technology um, because we think that there are some really interesting opportunities in terms of what the technology can do. This is Sophie Gilder. Sophie is the head of blockchain for the Commonwealth Bank's Innovation Lab and has been involved in a number of real-world experiments testing the technology's capabilities. We think that that decentralisation actually can offer increased flexibility in terms of how we share secure information. So I guess there's quite a lot of opportunities we're pursuing along parallel streams. We think that there's really significant efficiencies to be gained using blockchain technology. It effectively reduces the friction in reaching agreement with people because you've got a shared set of facts which are in a um, blockchain ledger or, or shared database. Um, we think there's the ability to, to build completely new digital markets um, that either enhance ones today or uh, create entirely new ones. And what blockchain is doing there is it's really coordinating the actions of many different parties. And it's doing that by providing an agreed set of facts on which they can um, interact with and con contract on. 
And then um, there's a lot of other opportunities for banks, which are they're probably quite bank specific, but in the audit and compliance area, blockchain actually allows you to embed rules into the code so that you can ensure that you're following the um, the highest possible um, levels of uh, compliance. So it's actually a really useful business tool just in terms of uh, compliance and audit trails. Blockchain started as the backbone of cryptocurrencies and there are many different variants that have different implementations of a blockchain. Obviously, there's the Bitcoin blockchain, but the one everyone is talking about at the moment is Ethereum. Unlike the Bitcoin blockchain, Ethereum actually allows developers to build new applications on top of its architecture and use its blockchain for many different uses outside of just the exchange of money. One of the things that Ethereum allows is the idea of smart contracts, which, as we mentioned when we discussed cryptocurrencies, is a contract that is tied to the exchange of a currency. These contracts self-execute when predetermined conditions are met. But Sophie Gilder says the concept of smart contracts being smart isn't entirely accurate. Smart contract, it's a bit of a misnomer. So it's arguably neither smart nor a legally binding contract, but that's the terminology we're stuck with. So a smart contract is really simply a piece of self-executing code. So if you're familiar with Excel spreadsheets, for example, it's like an if function, if this, than that. So it's a way of automating certain actions based on the occurrence of pre-agreed events. And we think that this holds significant promise because for a start, blockchains, whilst they're not the only way of doing smart contracts, they lend themselves to efficient execution of smart contracts. Um, we think that there's huge application here for automating certain actions. A really simple example would be if I want to pay someone on a particular date, I could set up a smart contract that says when it is date X, pay person Y. And this means that it will go ahead and execute as soon as those predetermined um, events occur, e.g. when that date occurs. It means there's no manual intervention that's required then. Um, and so it can be a very efficient way of doing these, um, performing these tasks where there's a black and white precondition that needs to occur. So it's not applicable to everything. You can't automate everything through smart contracts, but there's many actions that you can make much, much faster, and, um, more efficient through smart contracts. Because you're doing it in a blockchain, it becomes cryptographically verifiable. This is Jackson Palmer, the creator of Dogecoin, and someone who posts a lot of videos about cryptocurrencies and blockchain on his YouTube channel. We spoke with him in the last episode. If a service is saying, hey, we're going to take your data and do X with it, um, the end user can be sure that that did happen because it was it, it occurred on the blockchain. So um, Ethereum is, is really the first kind of popular implementation of, of smart contracts. And what it does is it takes, you know, arbitrary code that anybody writes. They write a few lines of code and they say, I want to run this on a distributed network. Now, this does have implications in that, you know, people can write simple little contracts for payments, for, exist, for example, like, uh, you know, example might be that, um, you know, if you send $100 to this particular address, then the smart contract runs some code and says, okay, um, because that has happened, we will trigger another transaction that will then, you know, send $1,000 to somebody else, right? So you can do a lot of this if-then kind of logic 
in a decentralized way that isn't reliant on a single party or a single server. The one challenge with this is because, you know, similarly to the, the scaling issues we were talking about with Bitcoin, because it's not being done on a centralized server somewhere, it is more costly because you have to pay the whole network to 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 do that and to, to verify it on every node. And as such, you know, executing an instruction on a smart contract may cost, you know, a dollar or two dollars when you want to interact with that, which you know, if we're talking centralized, would cost probably a fraction of a cent. So it is more expensive. Um, I, I I kind of question whether it all needs to be done in a decentralized way, philosophically. And as Sophie mentioned before, smart contracts aren't exactly legally binding, which raises a number of questions. Smart contracts require hard and fast rules. And as everyone knows, Often the law isn't so black and white. Yes, when you have a traditional contract, often the contracts can be updated or changed or even extended by agreement between the parties. And if the parties disagree, then a court can make a ruling as to how the contract should be executed. But smart contracts raise a bunch of questions because they self-execute. Like how will they actually work within our existing legal frameworks that have been around for generations? The legal system is is built on what has happened in the past. It's built on precedent and and much of it is archaic. However, um, what I think we'll see in the blockchain space is actually a hybrid model where you have the existing legal framework which continues on and blockchain and specifically smart contracts is merely a tool which can execute certain terms and conditions within a legal document. So it doesn't encapsulate the entire document. It merely automates certain terms and, provi- and terms and conditions. For example, that automation of a payment example that I gave. So it's not the full contract between two parties. It's often just a, a subset of that overarching legal agreement. More than a few people are saying that blockchain has a potential to transform archaic systems. And Sophie Gilder actually agrees, which is why the Commonwealth Bank has run a number of blockchain experiments. And one of the more interesting uses is in the area of trade. So global trade is a particular example where um, the way that people interact and get goods um, across the globe hasn't really changed much since medieval times. There's a lot of manual uh, processes. There's a lot of paper documents. Um, there's a lot of document handling, getting it from A to B. There's wet signatures, e.g. old-fashioned pen signatures. And there's a lot of coordination that needs to happen between a vast number of parties, for example, from the um, grower of a commodity through to the logistics providers that get it to port to then the ship shipping um, entity which gets it across the globe and then to the end buyers. And in addition to that, there's a whole lot of government entities that also need to um, monitor what is happening. So vast number of players, vast number of contracts between all of those different individual um, entities, um, and it's phenomenally inefficient. So we believe that blockchain is the perfect solution as a coordination mechanism between all those parties, where firstly you digitise all of the agreements and then you securely share them between those parties. So effectively you're building this digital thread from start to finish along the journey that a good takes um, as it gets from origin through to destination. The Commonwealth Bank, along with Wells Fargo and Brigham Cotton, actually used blockchain to facilitate the transaction of 88 bales of cotton. The bales were being sent from a port in the US across to China. 
Sophie says the transaction involved three different layers, an operational layer, a documentary layer, and a financial layer. The operational layer was tracking the movement of the shipment and also used an IoT device to measure the location and append that information to the blockchain. It's getting this time-lapse picture of exactly where the underlying is from a geolocation perspective, but also other factors. It could be measuring, for example, temperature, moisture, um, movement, depending on what is important for that particular export. Then in addition to that, in addition to that operational layer, there's the documentary layer. So that's capturing all of the uh, agreements between different parties, putting a hash of them on the blockchain, a unique um, digital identifier so that you can be sure that you've got the authentic document, the agreement between those parties. And then in addition to that, we are now exploring financing overlays where we believe we can develop some really interesting solutions for um, the financing of participants along the supply chain by using the real-time uh, trusted information that the blockchain has captured in terms of where is the good, whose hands are um, already is it in at this, this moment in time, and what is the condition of the good as well. Did the way that you approached this change after you'd run this experiment? That's an interesting question because we're now moving on to a phase two, building on this earlier experiment. And what we're doing is we're extending it further along the supply chain so that we can capture the full picture right from origin to destination so we can provide provenance of where the goods come from because there's a chronological history of um, start to finish. But in addition to that, um, as we've added more players along the supply chain, we've had to think about things like how to balance the different interests of the different participants along the supply chain. And they have different needs. And that's an important area that we have to look into for all of the um, projects that we have underway, how to make sure that this collaborative technology suits all users, not just a few. And we'll have more on blockchain right after this break. This is Moonshot. I'm Andrew Moon. And in this episode, we are looking at blockchain and potential applications of the technology outside of cryptocurrencies. And at the top of the show, we mentioned a couple of the more out there ideas that have been built on top of blockchain tech. We release new cats every 15 minutes. So a new cat every 15 minutes. So if you come in, there'll always be a new cat. Uh, available and uh, for auction and if you're the lucky winner then you may have be the person that first has a brand new gene and a, and a completely new trait. CryptoKitties is an interesting implementation that has enabled people to own virtual cats and instead of money being transferred in the network you trade CryptoKitties <coughs> and if you have multiple CryptoKitties then they can breed and create new CryptoKitties and then you have lots of CryptoKitties. <coughs> But while CryptoKitties is just one use, many implementations of blockchain centre in some way around finance. And one of the other ideas that Sophie Gilder's team at the Commonwealth Bank has experimented with is crypto bonds. We partnered with Queensland Treasury Corporation to create what we termed a crypto bond. What we're really saying there is it's a digital representation of their bond obligation, which is stored in a blockchain. 
and the blockchain acts as the asset register. It just says who owns the bond. And each time the bond is sold in the secondary market between different investors, the blockchain updates the new owner. So that's basically what we mean by a crypto bond. It's a digital security which can be transferred peer-to-peer on a blockchain-enabled platform. Have you developed your own version of the blockchain for all these experiments that you're doing or are you building off like Ethereum or, or one of these existing you know, blockchain networks? We're building on a lot of different blockchain networks, not our, not our own proprietary version, but instead modified versions of open source blockchains. So we've built on many blockchains to date. We've done the majority of our um, development on the Ethereum blockchain, but on private permissioned versions of Ethereum where we have changed the fundamental features to get, for example, faster transaction speeds uh, or greater reliability or we've modified consensus algorithms. So we use some blockchain protocols which are open source and available for anyone to use, but then we modify them fairly heavily in order to suit our needs. So as I said, we've used Ethereum, but we've also used um, Hyperledger, quarter and looked into various others. So we don't have a preferred blockchain, if that makes sense. In fact, they're developing so fast that um, I believe that, um, you know, we haven't seen the perfect blockchain yet. They're improving all of the time. And I see it as our role to understand what the pros and cons of each are and to continue to follow the market very closely At this stage, I believe we can remain blockchain agnostic rather than commit to a particular protocol. There's already research which shows that a large amount of cryptocurrency transactions are fraudulent. And while many of the issues around how you deal with illegal activity are yet to be resolved, in this episode we're actually looking at other applications of blockchain. And considering the rise of smart contracts, I asked Sophie Gilder how you actually deal with fraud in a blockchain-based network. So blockchain itself and and smart contracts in many ways we see as a solution to fraud. Um, An example of that would be in the global trade space where you're dealing with paper documents, they can be altered. And there's many instances in recent times where um, documents which are relied upon which are just in paper and therefore are not fraud proof um, have been used for and banks have funded against them believing that they were the genuine article when in actual fact they were fraudulent copies or um, reproductions. So one of the things that we think blockchain is an excellent solution for is knowing that you've got the genuine, unique document or credential provided. And um, you know this on a blockchain because you can have, um, for example, ownership can be proven by the um, ownership of a particular public and private key. So you can actually avoid fraud uh, using blockchain in many ways that you can't with existing systems where you're reliant on paper. So we actually see it as a solution to fraud. With cryptocurrency, um, people seem to forget that a lot of the the stuff that makes cryptocurrency cryptocurrency is derived from cryptography, which has been around for decades, you know, and cryptography in some of these cryptographic fundamentals can be used for all sorts of things. And they are, they're used every time you go and you visit a website, 
um, and you see that little that green padlock that said HTTPS, um, that's using cryptography, that's using encryption, right? This is Jackson Palmer again. A lot of this technology is already being used behind the scenes and you might not even know it. Um, people act as like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is, is some sort of new invention. Like people try to, you know, um, say it's like the you know the invention of the internet, um, but really it's just a packaging up of, of technologies that we've been using day to day. You know, even when you're having a, a phone call on Skype, it's being encrypted over the line using cryptography. So I think that there's many applications that already exist out there in the world of the same sort of technology that people just don't even know about. And you know, I think this stuff can be used, you know, not only for end-to-end -end encryption in like messaging apps, like Signal. I think is a is a really good implementation cryptographically, but I think will continue to be used in things that rely on um, data storage. Um, I think is is important for encrypted data storage. And lastly, I'd say, you know, one of the things that I think will come out of this is the ability to provide auditable ledgers. Like I think the blockchain is is cool in the way that it it. It, the people that are writing to it, if they lie, you can tell that they're lying and you can stop using that ledger or you can, you know, have an audit trail. If something like, you know, um, Wall Street was operating on on a cryptographic ledger, even if it was centralized, even if it didn't do all that proof of work stuff, but say the people had to sign every transaction and then write it in, you would at least have that audit trail because people wouldn't be able to invent money out of thin air. They wouldn't be able to do anything outside of the purview of, of an auditor. And so I think some of these concepts, I think, will start working their way into everyday systems. I don't think it's going to be a revolutionary thing that changes everything tomorrow. I think it's going to be a very slow burn where we just see some of the good stuff make its way into everyday technology we use. First of all, this is an experimental space. That's Jason Potts again from RMIT. Right. So just everything you look at is, is new and exciting and experimental. Um, the ones that... I, I, I get long-term excited about is what's happening in the smart contract space. Um, so you know, smart contracts were, were, were essentially the idea behind the Ethereum blockchain. And the Ethereum blockchain was essentially re was based on the insight that the information that you have on a blockchain could include software. Or it could be, the, 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 could, could be code. Um, if we can do code, we can do contracts on a blockchain. Um, the... Fascinating thing that I'm, I'm seeing at the moment is Materium. And Materium is essentially an attempt to take this to the next level and go, okay, so we can build contracts on blockchains. That means we need courts and we need dispute resolution mechanisms. And we basically need to start rebuilding um, these institutions um, that you know we've we've, we've had um, in in the real world for you know for millennia, um, but we need to rebuild these things in this in this crypto space. Um, so, um, Materium is led by Vinay Gupta, who's um, absolutely one of the gurus in this in this space. But I think that notion of this kind of um, you know if if we landed on Mars and had to rebuild society there, we'd we'd go through similar processes. First, we'd need to sort of build infrastructure, and then we'd need to build institutions. Um, we're doing that right here. We're building. We've you know first we've put money on the blockchain, then we've put contracts on the blockchain. Now we're building courts and other institutions on that, and you know that that 
process of actually rebuilding a civilization on in this space is just fascinating to observe. Um, you know, one that it's happening. Um, two, how fast this is happening. We, you know, from money to um, contracts was five years. From contracts to courts being built was what three years now. You know, historically, from money to contracts was ten thousand years. The previous time we tried to do this, it took a lot longer than the, the, what we're doing now. So. I mean, I, th I find this fascinating. This this, this idea that um, not only that we are we are somehow doing this, but this is being done by volunteer collectives of citizens just coming together on the internet. In many cases, not even necessarily in the same space, and rebuilding societies um, in a way that is complementary with with the existing. You know, this isn't a secessionist movement in the in the sense that we're against. Know, being against the nation states, but actually rebuilding entire economic and social infrastructure um, in this, it's, you know, it's an incredible thing to see. You mentioned that idea of like self-assembling and what is motivating people to, to really sort of join together to create these interesting ideas and based around blockchain? If you look at who is doing this, isn't, you know, these, are, these are sort of entrepreneurial types, but they're, they're, they're they're um, hackers and think, you know, they're, they're people just who really enjoy playing with new ideas. You know, I've been fortunate enough to meet some of these people and what's sort of striking about them is just how passionate they are about the idea. Um, you know, they're, they're not seeing this as a way to get rich or a way to create power. They're just purely, isn't this an amazing thing we're doing? Who wants to join me building this thing? So you've got this real powerful communitarian spirit that's animating and, and powering a lot of this, you know, which is infectious. It makes you want to be involved. It makes you want to cooperate and share information around this. And it's that pooling and sharing and cooperation aspect to this um, that I think is, is the secret source in all of this. Um, I mean, what's striking and interesting about this particular about, about blockchain technology is where it didn't come from it didn't come out of a corporate r d lab and um, it wasn't created in a basement with a in a six billion dollar research budget then patented and then you know released to the world through a marketing um, process it didn't come from the place where technologies normally come from it's just came out of a few people who were working in the background on their sort of obsessive little projects. Um, they kept it secret for a long time and then, you know, gradually released it to their own private networks and then it just it broke free into the wild. You know, with the Satoshi thing, we still don't know who they, she, we, we don't know who that was, right? which is an incredible thing. But what we do know is that the minute it broke free from that, it, it was built by communities and things like Materium instance is one ethereum is another one these are these are groups of people who have come together want to work on a thing then they've built some organization structure around them in order to do that but what's striking about them is how open they are how transparent this whole process is this is you know, a bottom-up technological revolution where what is being built are tools for creating new societies. You know, so the, the fact that some of these things are, are just weird and curious and fun, like you know, the Crypto Kitties thing and just you know, and playful, um, I think is is actually you know, a really interesting aspect of this. That this is this is um, a technology that's being built that has an enormous amount of potential, disruptive potential in the world. But as I see it, and you know, contrary to the sort of those skeptics who look at this and go, oh, that's just for buying drugs on the internet, I sort of see it almost exactly the opposite of this. This is a technology for groups of people to come together and um, just see what sort of fun things they can actually do with that. And when these things turn out to have unexpected value, that is then released into the world. So I see that sort of open source hacker spirit in this as, as, the, as the most powerful aspect of this technology. 
coming up next time on Moonshot. Would you want to go? Like if Elon called you up and said, hey, do you want to come to Mars? <laughs> Would you go? No, no, no. Certainly not. No, no. I think I can have a better impact on, on this planet. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Moonshot. We love hearing from you, our listeners. So if you want to join the Moonshot community, head across to our website, moonshot.audio, send us a message or follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Moonshot Pod. Our cover artwork is by Andrew Millist and our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Moonshot is a production of Lawson Media and it's hosted by me, Christopher Lawson, and also Andrew Moon. And if you're interested in supporting the show through advertising, send us an email to moonshot at lawson.media. Join us again next time as we explore more ideas that are really taking off. 